The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love that lasts forever know His hope and sure salvation I will trust in Him Oh, the world falls around me I rest and know that He has found me Christ, the rock, is my Welcome all to Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, Pastor is an acrostic which stands for Preaching All Salvation Through One Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome to Pastor Yeshua. In this episode, and by God's grace, episodes to follow, we continue to look at various apparent supposed Bible contradictions presented by atheists, skeptics, and humanists. We will examine them against what the Bible says in context according to proper exegesis, using the languages in question, correct grammar, the culture of the day, and most importantly, the prism of spiritual discernment given by God to those who truly desire to understand his revelation of himself and his relationship to man. As a prelude to answering any apparent Bible contradictions, if you as a listener have not done so already, listening to the introductory episode regarding questions about contradictions will be an indispensable prologue to fully understanding, or more importantly, answering any question or apparent contradiction which exists. 
Therefore, I will have to rely from this point forward on the listener to faithfully adopt the biblical posture of the Berean Bible student who is willing and able to do their own respective homework in order to avoid the pitfalls inherent from failing to do so. With this in mind, let us consider addressing the following questions about apparent Bible contradictions put forward by Mr. Ash. For our next randomly selected apparent Bible contradiction, Mr. Ash asks, Are we to lie or tell the truth? Mr. Ash first reads Exodus chapter 20, verse 16. Quote, Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Unquote. Then Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 20. Quote, Neither shalt thou bear false witness against thy neighbor. Unquote. Finally, Proverbs chapter 12, verse 22, quote, Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but they that deal truly are his delight, unquote. Mr. Ashton compares these verses to the following verses from which he concludes there is a contradiction. 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 23, quote, now, therefore, behold, the Lord hath put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these thy prophets, and the Lord hath spoken evil concerning thee, unquote. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 11, quote, And for this cause God shall send them strong delusion, that they should believe a lie, unquote. Finally, Mr. Ash lists Joshua chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, and James chapter 2, verse 25, both of which deal with Rahab lying about the Israelite spies, and later being mentioned as a hero of faith. Now here, in this question, Mr. Ash's lack of spiritual discernment, coupled with his propensity to construct categorical fallacies, is nowhere more evident. In essence, Mr. Ash is conflating man's fallen attributes with that of God's attributes. On the one hand, all of God's nature and attributes, including righteousness, holiness, justice, mercy, and truth, are equally perfect and immutable. On the other hand, given the fact that man has fallen in sin, man's nature and attributes are mutable and fickle at best. So from God's perspective, he can say, as in Exodus chapter 20, verse 16, and Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 20, as well as Proverbs chapter 12, verse 22, and others, that it is his commandment and will that man should speak and act according to his nature, which is perfect. Thus, if man were to think, speak, and act according to God's nature, man would speak the truth according to God's righteousness, mercy, justice, and holiness. Man would not lie if he were acting according to God's nature, because God's nature is not to lie. At the same time, we must remember that the current state of affairs is a result of God's permitting Adam and Eve's free will in the garden in order to demonstrate meaningful love and trust on their part. 
In other words, God could have created two robots who were forced to love, trust, and obey him at all times. However, doing so would bring no meaning to the love, trust, and obedience which Adam and Eve were forced to give. Thus, Adam and Eve had to have the choice to love, trust, and obey God in order to make their choice truly meaningful. Secondly, Adam and Eve both had to have something to choose. If God was the only thing to choose, then neither Adam nor Eve would have any alternative, and again, their option would be to love, trust, and obey God. In order to have meaning, Adam and Eve had to have an ostensible alternative to trusting, obeying, and loving God. Enter Satan, the serpent, the deceiver, and the father of lies. Satan lies to Adam and Eve, telling them both that by eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that they can both be like God. This, in contradiction to God telling Adam and Eve that they were forbidden to eat of the fruit and that if they did so, they would die. Now, in the end, God permitted Satan to interact with Adam and Eve and to tell the lie that he did. The purpose for doing so was to provide for the stage with which to give Adam and Eve the necessary alternatives with which to have a choice, to make a choice, i.e. free will, and to thereby make the choice of Adam and Eve to trust, love, and obey God meaningful. Most regrettably, the history is that Adam and Eve chose to take their trust, love, and obedience off of God and place that trust in Satan's lie that they could be like God according to the knowledge of good and evil. Since then, man has been under the power of sin, the curse, and the lie. However, the good news is that God had a plan in store even before the world began where he would redeem mankind from the power of sin and the curse through Jesus. So from the beginning of time, from Adam and Eve to the present, God's desire was and is to have fellowship with his creation man and for his creation man to be conformed into his image. That image would ideally include man being righteous, holy, just, merciful, and honest, i.e. truthful. At the same time, we have verses like 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 23, quote, now therefore, behold, the Lord hath put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these thy prophets, and the Lord hath spoken evil concerning thee, unquote. Now, first of all, the word translated, quote, put, unquote, here is better translate, quote, permit or allow, unquote. Here in the context, we have the story of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and Ahab king of Israel during the period of the divided kingdom going to war against the Syrians. During this incident, Ahab, who was considered a wicked king, 
sought out the advice of false prophets who were worshiping false gods such as Baal. All of these false prophets told Ahab that he should go to war with Syria and that Ahab would prevail. Jehoshaphat asks Ahab if Ahab has consulted with any prophets of the Lord. Ahab tells Jehoshaphat that there is only one, Micaiah, but Micaiah only historically gives Ahab bad news. When Ahab adjures Micaiah to tell him God's word, Micaiah informs Ahab that he will lose. When Ahab reacts poorly, Micaiah gives Ahab the explanation that the reason for the false prophets giving good news of victory for Ahab is because God has permitted or allowed a lying spirit in the mouth of those so-called prophets. So what we have is Ahab and Israel who have rebelled against God and given themselves over to the worship of Baal and other false idol worship. As a result of Israel's idolatry and rebellion, God begins to deliver them into the hands of the Syrians for punishment. Lastly, we have Ahab consulting with false prophets whom he knows are not speaking for the Lord. In keeping with the previous explanation, we understand that here, in 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 23, we have the same basic understanding of God's sovereign will. God's desire is that Ahab and Israel will worship, honor, trust, love, and obey him. Ahab and Israel have instead chosen to give worship, honor, trust, and love to false gods and immorality. Ahab and Israel seek out the counsel of the false prophets who ultimately serve Satan, the father of lies. In 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 23, Micaiah simply explains that God has given permission or allowance of a lying spirit to Ahab and Israel who are already seeking that out because of sin and rebellion. Ultimately, God's reason is to give mercy to those who will ultimately repent as a result of suffering the logical consequence of their rebellion and justice to those who will refuse to repent. In each case, we understand that it is not God who is lying or being in contradiction to his nature and attributes. It is man who is doing so. Next, we have 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 11. Quote, And for this cause God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. End quote. Here, Paul is describing the axiomatic result of any person who hardens their heart in rebellion against God. God's desire and perfect will is that according to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, quote, the Lord is not slack concerning his promises, son men count slackness, but is long suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that should all should come to repentance. Unquote. It is on this basis that God tries the hearts of men and draws whom he wills according to his perfect pleasure and counsel. 
for those who repent and respond by faith to God's call, they are given a new nature with spiritual discernment and godly wisdom. For those who harden their hearts in rebellion and unbelief, God simply allows these to further descend to the abyss of their own nature of sin, rebellion, and delusion. So here, properly understood, God is not the author of the delusion in question, nor is the delusion properly God's desire for any. The delusion here is as a logical result of those who abandon God, who is the only source of an authority for truth, meaning morals, beauty, reality, and significance. This also fits into the explanation of Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, which says, quote, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. Unquote. This being the case, the closer to God we are, and the more awe and respect we have, the more wisdom God imparts as a result. The more mankind resorts to rebellion against God, the more distant man makes himself to wisdom, and the more susceptible man becomes to the schemes and lies of the flesh, the world, and Satan, all of which carry their own deception leading to destruction. At last we have Joshua chapter 2 verses 4 through 6 and James chapter 2 verse 25. In Joshua chapter 2 verses 4 through 6 we have the story of Rahab who is an inhabitant of Jericho. Joshua and the Israelites determined to overthrow Jericho and send two Israelite spies into the city to gain intelligence. The spies are discovered, and Rahab hides the spies while lying to the king of Jericho's men, telling them that the spies have already fled. Later, James chapter 2 verse 25 praises Rahab for her faith. In this story, uh, Mr. Ash's takeaway is that Rahab lied in violation of God's command not to lie, and then James refers to Rahab as a person of faith, which Mr. Ash sees as a contradiction. However, we must point out the utter hypocrisy of Mr. Ash's pretense here. If we assume Mr. Ash's bias that the atheist and humanist are the benchmark for morality and ethics, then even by Mr. Ash's definition, his argument defeats his position. For example, Assume we have a wife who has been routinely physically abused by her husband and is now in danger of her welfare. The wife leaves her husband and goes into protective hiding. Now, we assume that the husband comes to Mr. Ash, who hypothetically knows where the wife is and asks Mr. Ash, where is my wife? According to Mr. Ash's moral and ethical compass code, here, he must be forced to tell where the wife is in order to avoid lying. If he refuses or misleads, he is lying and he is immoral. I dare say that in situations like this, even Mr. Ash, with all of his pretense of moral superiority, would see the need to lie in order to protect the wife as the greater good. 
this is exactly the point here. Mr. Ash seems to forget that in Joshua chapter 1, God had already given Joshua instruction to cross the Jordan River and promised that he would deliver all the land, including Jericho, to the Israelites. By the time the spies reached Rahab, Rahab was already fully aware of all of the instances of God's miraculous deliverance of Israel as his chosen people. Rahab further had faith and confidence that God would deliver Jericho to the Israelites in like manner. Thus, Rahab knew that she was at a crossroads where she had to make a choice between God's people, who were going to be victorious in conquering Jericho, and being conquered and killed along with Jericho and its inhabitants. Rahab simply made the correct decision by choosing God and his people against the idol-worshipping enemies of God and his people. Additionally, Rahab made a practical decision to save herself and her family versus dying. Now, Mr. Ash can pretend all he wants that he is morally and ethically superior to Rahab and that he would never lie for any reason. But the truth is that if Mr. Ash and his family's lives were at stake in a similar situation, Mr. Ash would have no problem lying to protect himself and his family and he would rationalize his lie as being noble and good since he was doing the right thing by saving his family. Likewise, it is clear that since God is the ultimate authority in the universe, it is clear that when God says that his people shall not lie or bear false witness, that this prohibition of lying starts with lying to God and his representatives. So Rahab is being loyal to God and the Israelite people, including the spies who are God's representatives, as she should rightly do. And the only other choice to avoid disloyalty to God is to protect the spies by lying to the king of Jericho's men who are not loyal to God or his representatives. With this correct worldview and context, Rahab did the right thing, and James chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, and others can properly characterize Rahab as a hero of faith on that basis. In conclusion, there is no contradiction because the requirement to tell the truth or to bear truthful witness always begins and ends with doing what God would have us do according to his will, according to his word, in full context. If we fail to carry out God's will according to his word in full context, then it does not matter how much we tell the truth because we are still in rebellion to God and thus we have committed a far greater sin than simply lying. Our goal, of course, is by God's grace to always exemplify the nature and character of God to its fullest extent. Certainly this would include being honest. But our honesty must always serve to glorify God and to accomplish His sovereign will and not our own. For our next apparent contradiction, Mr. Ash asks, 
Does God ever tempt people? In order to arrive at this supposed contradiction, Mr. Ash reads the following. Genesis chapter 22, verse 1, quote, And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham, and said unto him, Abraham? And he said, Behold, here I am, unquote. Mr. Ash then races to James chapter 1, verse 13, where it says, quote, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man." Unquote. Between these two, Mr. Ash assumes that there is a contradiction between a God who eagerly looks for every opportunity to trick and destroy everyone, and a claim that God never tempts anyone. However, once again, the truth lies in the fact that in this case, Mr. Ash fails to properly translate the word, quote, tempt, unquote, found in Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. As was pointed out in the episode entitled, Thy Only Son, the Hebrew word translated, quote, tempted, unquote, is more properly translated, quote, to prove or to try something or someone, unquote. Now, in terms of theological definitions, there is a profound difference between the English word tempt and some of its implications and the word prove or try and their implications. As we survey the entirety of God's word in context, we are able to place these words and their definitions into proper perspective regarding God's nature and attributes. First of all, we have the word temptation and a definition in which the one doing the tempting has a malevolent intent and desire to cause the one being tempted to fail, to be negatively affected, to be damaged, or to be destroyed as a result of the temptation. Then we have the words try or prove and a definition in which the one doing the trying or the proving is giving a test or an assessment, either directly or indirectly, during which the one trying or proving intends to provide opportunities for the success of the one being tried or proved. Further, the overall outcome and status of the one being tried or proved has the goal to benefit positive dividends in accordance to the desires of the one trying or proving. This is exactly the situation we find with Abraham in Genesis chapter 22 verse 1. God has already chosen Abraham prior to chapter 22 of Genesis because God knew from his eternal perspective that Abraham would trust and obey God. Further, God knew from the foundation of the world that he would provide his son, Jesus, as a willing sacrifice necessary to atone for everyone, including Abraham and his son, Isaac. As a result, God likewise knew that it would not be necessary for Abraham to sacrifice his own son. So the episode with Abraham was nothing more than two things. One, 
The episode was God trying and proving Abraham in order to give him an opportunity to trust, obey, and grow in his faith regarding God's provision, mercy, and grace. In keeping with the above definition of God's attributes, God's intent was not to destroy Abraham or Isaac. Rather, God's intention was to provide tangible guidance, help, and intervention to achieve the ultimate sovereign will and purpose of God. Second, the episode serves as a type and shadow to depict various aspects of the propitiatory sacrifice of Jesus and his relationship to God the Father, which is the substance of this particular story in Genesis chapter 22. Thus, we can say that God did not tempt Abraham in the sense that he wanted Abraham to fail or to fall into sin. Instead, as Jeremiah 17.10 states, quote, I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings, unquote. At the same time, for those who are sincerely seeking and exercising faith in God, we can say just as with Abraham, the same thing which 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 says, quote, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that which you are able but will, with the temptation, also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it, unquote. Consequently, in full context, God is never tempting anyone to sin, to rebel, or to do evil. None of this is according to God's nature and character. However, God does try and prove various people by various means, with the aim in mind to refine, to strengthen, to purify, and other objectives which are in accordance to his overall sovereign will, according to his perfect nature. Further, we have the promise that those whom God calls, he tries and proves. Whom God elects, he gives the necessary means by which to persevere and to obtain victory in Christ with regard to sanctification, glorification, and our eternal state. In all, to date, in this series, we have examined and answered 21 questions regarding Bible contradictions from Mr. Ash. In each case, these are serious questions posed by various individuals who hold themselves out to be scholars, critical thinkers, intellectuals, and the like who collectively fall under the pseudonym of Mr. Ash. These and others are questions which individually and collectively serve as the basis by which we are intended to come to the conclusion that the Bible is not God's Word, but rather a collection of myths and fables only to be believed by the simple-minded and gullible. However, in truth, these 21 and a myriad of remaining others are nothing more than apparent contradictions which exist and remain largely, if not exclusively, due in fact to Mr. Ash's inability or unwillingness to do his research 
coupled with his unwillingness to open his mind and heart to God and his word. This concludes this episode. Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening.